Chapter 12b of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thus we see that the former passage, as explained by the latter, has nothing to do with what is called Negro stealing, either in Old Canaan, Africa, or anywhere else. It referred wholly, solely, and primarily to the people of the Jews, protecting themselves from themselves, in this particular matter. For as strange as it may appear, the Hebrews were very much prone to the stealing of men of their own blood and race, for slaves, and to sell them to strangers. A severe law, therefore, was necessary to restrain them from the perpetration of this crime against themselves. But if it is still insisted upon by any one that the first quoted passage on this subject did relate to Canaanite men as well as to Hebrew men, then such persons are compelled to believe that God both allowed of the destruction and the protection of the Canaanites at the same time. Rather a crooked position for a Hebrew to understand just then, when they were on the eve of a war of extermination, as it regarded the Canaanites, commanded and directed by God himself. Could it have been any worse for a Hebrew at that time, to steal, take, capture, and enslave a Canaanite negro, than it was to kill him? To kill and exterminate them, showing them no mercy, was the direct and pointed command of God, as we have before shown. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2. Under so large a license as this, the man is a fool who will pretend that stealing and enslaving the negro Canaanites was prohibited by those passages, as above presented, especially when the law of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 44 through 46, directly and pointedly allowed the Hebrews to make bondmen of that people, and to use them as slaves forever. To this very law of Moses, which forbade all Hebrews stealing any individual of their own race, St. Paul alludes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, where it is written, that the law was not made against the righteous, but against the wicked, men-stealers, etc. Now, if we have shown, as above, that the passage in the law of Moses extended no further than to the prohibition of Hebrews stealing persons of their own blood or race, as included in the twelve tribes, we are not at liberty to suppose that St. Paul meant anything more, as there was no other law for him to allude to, as extent, when he wrote to Timothy, and when he made the remark about man-stealing. But, says one, to enslave a negro man is against the intent of the law of Moses, inasmuch as St. Paul has said, Romans chapter 13 verse 8, and Galatians chapter 5 verse 14, that love to our neighbor is the fulfilling of the law. How, therefore, can any one love, in the true and holy sense of the word, who enslaves a black man? 
This is answered as follows. God, having judicially appointed that race to servitude, the law of love cannot abrogate it any more than the law of love can abrogate several other particulars of judicial appointment, such as, it is appointed unto man that they should die, the woman was condemned to be ruled over by her husband, the earth was cursed in relation to its fruitfulness, the wicked dead are sent to hell, the earth is doomed to be burnt up, and many more things which might be adduced as being determined judicially, all of which the law of love cannot reach nor abrogate. It is idle, therefore, to urge an argument on such ground as that, for God's determinations and decrees are not frustrated by his benevolence, else there were an end to his government. To strengthen this position, if need be, we may mention that Abraham, Job, Lot, and thousands of the holy men of old, as well as modern, had vast multitudes of black slaves. Were none of these lovers of God and their neighbors, in the true and holy sense of the word? At the time Moses wrote the famous passage of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7, saying to the Hebrews that if any man among them was found out in having stolen any of their brethren, the Israelites, and of having sold them, that such a one should be put to death. What a pity it is that there was not, at the time, a thorough-going abolitionist at the elbow of Moses, to have just popped the idea respecting the strict necessity there was of inserting simply a word or two in favor of the negroes and to read as follows if any man be found stealing any black or negro person of the race of ham whom noah cursed from this time to the end of the world and maketh merchandise of him then that thief should be put to death such a clause would have done the business exactly. Oh, what a pity! What a pity that abolitionism could not have had a hand in the councils of heaven about that time, as well as when St. Paul wrote to Philemon and Timothy on the subject of Negro slavery. But there is still another passage of Holy Writ to be examined, which at first sight seems to make pointedly against the doctrine of enslaving the blacks, and is quoted triumphantly by abolitionists, as of sufficient weight and authority to crush and abolish forever a belief in the propriety and rectitude of compelling the servitude of the negro race, as being founded in the scriptures. The passage alluded to is found in Revelation chapter 18 verse 13, and accuses some combination or anti-Christian establishment called Babylon the Great of dealing in slaves and the souls of men, which crime, together with others, called for the wrath of God to be poured out upon it. But it is our opinion that this passage of scripture has no more to do with the question of Negro slavery, in the literal and personal sense of the word, 
than the other passages of the Bible already alluded to, unless it can be shown that some great combination of men, called Babylon the Great, which existed in the time of St. John, did actually deal in slaves, which we believe will be rather difficult to make out. There can be no doubt but this power, which is called by St. John Babylon the Great, is to be understood spiritually, and as characterizing, by the spirit of prophecy, some dreadful heresy or anti-Christian combination, which was to arise in the world. This Babylon is many times referred to in the book of Revelation, as in chapter 14, verse 8, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 19, and is doubtless the same power which is called Revelation chapter 11 verse 8, Sodom and Egypt, and Revelation chapter 17 verse 5, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And by St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that man of sin, who should wonderfully exalt himself by lying wonders, and should sit in the temple of God, the church, showing himself that he is God. Who this dreadful power was, the reader may easily conjecture. Now this is the power, therefore, who is accused of dealing in slaves, not literally, but spiritually, in misleading the mind, and, of necessity, the body, in matters of religious faith that scripture, therefore, no doubt, should be understood not of slavery in the common sense of the word, but rather its moral, spiritual, and religious meaning, as operating on the minds of men adherent to this great Babylon combination, who practiced deceit, ecclesiastical conjurations, etc., so that the souls and bodies of men were thereby sold to the devil, in leading them from the paths of truth and righteousness, in relation to love and obedience to God and his commandments. This is the way, as we believe, this great Babylon dealt in the bodies and souls of men. It is not uncommon for the scriptures to speak of great offenders as having sold themselves to work of wickedness, as in the case of Ahab, and many others. After the same manner of reasoning, therefore, as it respects this great Babylon, who dealt in slaves and the souls of men, it is to be understood wholly and entirely of the souls and bodies of her membership, who she had bought with her religious merchandise, as specified in that chapter, namely the eighteenth of Revelation. On that account, the wrath of God was to be poured out on this great Babylon, namely, for enslaving the souls, and, of necessity, the bodies of men, holding them under command, to do the bidding of this great Babylon, contrary to the word of God, thereby affecting the real and more valuable liberties of both soul and body, in time and eternity. We are compelled to take this course of explaining that text of St. John, 
lest we should be found arraigning two writers of the new testament against each other on the same subject namely of negro slavery for st john knew full well all that st paul had said on that subject thus we think we have rescued that passage of the revelator as well as the text of isaiah out of the hands of abolitionists who by subverting them from their true and original meaning endeavor to make it appear that the scriptures have long ago abolished negro slavery which is false either in so many words or in spirit but abolitionists advance other doctrines and opinions besides resting the scriptures on the subject of negro servitude which they publish to the world in their harangues books papers and pamphlets calculated to mislead the minds of men on the subject at issue they say that the principle of enslaving black men whether done in this or any other age in this or any other country quote, is a system of unlimited spiritual despotism and places masters in the seat of god or rather above god in respect to the slaves under their control it is they say contrary to the sovereignty of god over each and every individual who is held as a slave it does not recognize the right of the slave to obey god it follows the dictates of his own conscience to fulfill the station of a moral being to act as a free agent accountable to the judge and father of all to the supreme god who says all souls are mine the slave system in effect says this soul is mine not thine it belongs to an earthly master and thou its creator hast no right to command its obedience for all this see friend of man a paper dated january fifteenth eighteen thirty nine utica new york on the face of the above charge not only against american slavery but slavery in any country or age it is seen at a glance that the blow falls as heavily on the institutions of moses the practice of the patriarchs prophets elders kings and people not only of the jews but the christian church also even in the times of the apostles as it is intended to fall on american slavery the principle being the chief thing aimed at for if the law of that great legislator moses allowed of the enslaving of the canaanites for life and also during all their generations which we have shown was a fact then all the hebrews the patriarchs jews and prophets who acted on that law are by abolitionists made to have been as bad as they say american slaveholders are placing them all in one company and denouncing them as a set of villains fit only for the lowest abodes of damnation itself for abolitionists condemn slavery of every grade and description to all intents and purposes in all times ages and nations let it have been practised or sanctioned by whomsoever it may have been 
and this they do in the very face of God, who, through Noah, Moses, the prophets, and the law, did not only allow of restrictive slavery, in relation to the Hebrews, but also of irrestrictive slavery, in relation to the whole race of Ham, throughout all ages, or to the end of the present constitution of the earth. But abolitionists, in order to get rid of the fact of Bible slavery, as recognized in the law of Moses, and applied to the Negro race, have argued much, and labored hard to show that the Canaanites, who were bought by the Hebrews for bondmen and bondmaids, always bought them of themselves, and never of another, as if they were the property of somebody besides themselves. And with this they find no fault, being perfectly contented with the idea that a Negro Canaanite should, if he liked, sell himself. That was all right. But this idea we consider a most singular position for an abolitionist to take. As they pronounce all kinds of slavery and slave-selling or buying most cursed, and without authority, either from God or man. And yet a man may sell himself, even for life. How is this? Is there no paradox here? If a man sells himself, is he not sold? Is he not as much a slave as if somebody else sold him? This position of abolitionists, which, by a strange refinement, struggles to get rid of the plain letter of the law of Moses about Hebrews being allowed to buy slaves of the heathen round about them, establishes the very thing they are trying to annihilate, which is Negro slavery. For if the Canaanites could, without sin, sell themselves for bondmen, then the Canaanites sold slaves and the Hebrews bought them the persons who did it making no difference as to the principle of the act. It was the thing done, which made out the fact, not the modus operandi. So that even this very curious refinement of abolitionists, on the meaning of that trait in the law of Moses, has not rescued the point at issue from the hand of those who believe the Bible sanctions the unqualified servitude of the negro race, but establishes it. But this position of abolitionists is but a fiction, a mere ruse, which at once can be shown to be nothing else by a reference to the law itself on this very subject, and points out the children or the infants of the Canaanites as the objects of Hebrew slave purchasers see leviticus chapter twenty five verse forty five which reads as follows moreover of the children of the strangers that do sojourn among you of them shall you buy bondmen and of their families that are with you and they shall be your possession if then it were the children the hebrews were to buy of the canaanites is it to be supposed that children had either the right or the ability to sell themselves? Is it not far more reasonable to believe 
that the parents of such children were resorted to in such cases? As to the policy of such a regulation of Moses, relative to the purchase of slaves, it is evident at a glance, as children could be more easily managed and brought up to the liking of the master than could the adults. A desire in the mind of the slave to run away would be much lessened by the process of domestication, and a natural love of those who supplied their wants. But, says one, if the Canaanites were given to be destroyed by the Hebrews, even to entire extermination, how is it that Moses should say, in the law, anything about buying their children for slaves, seeing they could go and take as many as they wanted by force, just when they would? We answer this, by saying that the Hebrews did not fully obey the commands of Moses on this subject, as they should have done, on which account there were, always, during the whole reign of the Jews in that country, many of the Canaanite tribes living among them, with whom the Jews were not always at war. Now, in a case like this, if the Hebrews wanted slaves of the perpetual bondman character, they would rather, no doubt, go and buy them of such as had them to sell in a peaceable way. With a view to such circumstances, Moses directed them to buy the children of the Canaanites, as among the Hebrews there were always found parents in abundance of the Negro race, who would sell their children for slaves, as readily as they do now in Africa. There can be no doubt, therefore, but the Hebrews, many of them under the sanction of that clause of the law of Moses, got their living by thus buying children and selling them again in Judea and elsewhere. For, let it be observed that this law is not qualified as to its extent in carrying on the traffic. Then again, there were, no doubt, thousands of opportunities for the Hebrews, who wanted slaves of the Negro character, to buy them of Hebrews who had more than they wanted, of such as were born in their own families, of parents who had been taken prisoners in the wars of the country between the Canaanites and Hebrews. From these views, we see no great difficulty in the way of the Hebrews procuring as many slaves as they wanted, without raising a hostile troop, carrying ropes, and rushing upon the Canaanite families, in times of peace, to get bondmen of this description as there was, doubtless, an abundance of them born continually, throughout all their tribes, of such as were already slaves, and had been from the beginning of Hebrews' conquest of the country, who had been held as perpetual bondmen in virtue of the law of Moses, which said that they should be for a possession for them and their children for ever, but in relation to the charge of abolitionists that American slavery is a system of spiritual despotism, it is not true, on account of the thing being impossible and contrary to the nature of the human soul, as a master can have no power over the volitions of the spirit. 
power or dominion of the soul of a slave beyond the mere commands of a master in matters of labor was never desired by any slaveholder as thought mind or spirit cannot perform manual labor which is all that is required of a slave and this the body must perform if it is performed at all it is true however that the mind can be persecuted abused grieved and distressed and that mind retain its freedom of range and action loving hating and believing as it will after all the charge therefore that the principle of slavery is a principle which aims at a usurpation of the rights of god over the human soul is as false as it is monstrous and impossible god who created the african race and in their formation both of body and mind appointed them to slavery and servitude would not have implanted in the desire of the other races who are allowed to enslave them such an enemy to his sovereignty as a desire to enslave the soul and to take it out of the hands of the creator as abolitionists say slavery does this god has never done neither was it ever desired by any man who has owned a slave as an acquirement of such a description could be of no earthly service to any one was the spirit or desire which prompted abraham lot job moses and washington with millions of other good men in those ages as well as in america to have slaves or bondmen as a possession which they bought with their money a spirit which aimed at the usurpation of god's government over the souls of such bondmen we are compelled to say no or such a permit would never have been found in the law of moses nor the practice passed by without reproof in the new testament there is no such law in the codes of the slave-holding states that has a word to say about the souls minds or spirits of the slaves as relates to the coercion of that free principle the charge therefore as advanced by abolitionists against the slavery system is but a flare-up a flourish extra a mere scintillation of a fiery pen as wielded by some extraordinary spasm of eloquence if any of the laws of the slave-holding states are so framed as to incapacitate the slaves in relation to proper marriages and thus prevent a state of things highly beneficial to all orders of society they ought to be abolished and others enacted in their place compelling such marriages as love or fancy among the slaves might dictate however much their lewd propensities might contradict surely a course like this were better far for the interests of masters as well as slaves than promiscuous intercourse if god has placed the negro race under servitude that is of itself degrading enough without any additional circumstances of shame and therefore all slaveholders ought to practice the thing in an orderly and decent manner 
exalting the slave as a slave to aid him all that is needful in an honorable discharge of his duties towards masters his family friends kindred and his god slavery conducted thus toward the negro race would not be sinful because god in his providence has appointed the white man to be a guardian over the blacks in the characters of masters for their good and not their injury as to the charge of abolitionists who accuse slavery of incapacitating slaves to marry among themselves is shown not to be true from the genius design and chastity of the law of moses which abhorred all whoredom and libertinism of necessity therefore slaves among the hebrews if they would delight in each other's company males and females they must have been married or the curse of god would have been put upon the whole twelve tribes see deuteronomy chapter twenty two verses twenty and twenty one and chapter twenty three verses seventeen and eighteen where it is seen how very severe the law was against all offenders of a lewd description among the hebrews and are we to suppose that they were indifferent to the conduct of their bondmen and bondmaids in this particular consequently marriages must have taken place as much among their slaves as among the jews their masters thus it is evident notwithstanding the fine-spun goods and chattel arguments of abolitionists that a state of slavery does not essentially affect the marriages of slaves among themselves as if slaves in consequence of slavery are in all respects really and bona fide metamorphosed from human beings into some kind of implement as an axe a rake or a wagon which have neither passions nor souls as to the famous passage found in the constitution of the united states which reads that it was held by the powers of that constitution that all men are born free and equal we have not a thought that any allusion was had by that phraseology to negro slavery more than to men in the moon the whole and only allusion was to the tilted dignitaries and nobility of monarchical governments which enforced upon subjects and mankind the hateful idea of master and vassal lord and serf plebeian and patrician which distinction to the minds of the framers of the constitution was abhorrent to all their views of political liberty if this was not so and that clause had the negro's case in its eye as well as the above it is extremely singular that in the whole instrument the race is not mentioned nor their condition of slavery having shown in this section that isaiah did not abolish canaanitish or negro slavery and that the passage against man-stealing did not relate to any people except the hebrews as well as that slavery does not incapacitate slaves 
as to lawful marriages and many other matters, we next proceed to an examination of various notions and opinions of abolitionists, which, as we apprehend, are miserably out of the way. Thus, from Isaiah's pen, in word or deed, the Negroes of that time were never freed. The curse of Noah stood in them in force, as did the law together with that curse. No man had dared to dash the sacred page with charge of purpose in that ancient age, as fearless men do now who wish to see mutation where the truth should ever be. End of chapter 12